Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. Right out the gate, I want to apologize if the audio sounds not so good today. I plugged my microphone in this afternoon, and all of a sudden it was insanely hot and way too sensitive. So I am currently sitting about a foot and a half further back from the microphone than I normally do. I'm going to do my best to get through this episode without spiking my audio too much, but again, I do apologize if it doesn't sound as clear as it usually does. This week, we're going to be talking about the Republic of Lower Canada, which was officially and formally known as the Province of Lower Canada at the time that we're going to be discussing. That's basically just the chunk of the country that's sitting on top of New England. Our story this week begins in the year 1791, when King George III of Great Britain and Ireland signed into law an act. And this act had the ridiculously long legal name of, quote, an act to repeal certain parts of an act passed in the 14th year of His Majesty's reign, entitled an act for making more effectual provision for the government of the province of Quebec in North America and to make further provision for the government of the said province, unquote. This was otherwise known as the Clergy Endowments Act for short. And what this creatively named law did was create a House of Assembly for the citizens of the province of Lower Canada to vote in. In other words, Lower Canada now had their very own parliament. And, as tends to happen in every good parliament, two parties came to dominate. The English party, which spoke mostly English, and the Canadian party, which spoke mostly French. Keep in mind, this is what we would now call Quebec. As a result of the fact that the majority of people in Lower Canada spoke French, most representatives in the House of Assembly were French-speaking. And this was meant to make the French Canadians feel good about their place within the British Empire. Unfortunately for the French Canadians, while they had the majority in the elected government, the governor and the legislative council were both royal appointments, and both were able to veto any legislation that they wanted, with no checks to their power whatsoever. As a result, tensions began to rise between the English and French-speaking populations of Lower Canada until 1807, when James Henry Craig was appointed governor of the province. Craig was very distrustful of the Canadian party. He feared either a French-Canadian Republican movement forming, that's just a bit of foreshadowing for you, or he feared that the Canadian party would attempt to secede and join the United States, which they bordered. So, in 1810, he began imprisoning French-Canadian journalists, which included the leader of the Canadian party. This probably would have resulted in extreme levels of unrest among the population of Lower Canada, but in 1812, there was a war and the name of this war was the War of 1812. With the United States and the Kingdom of Great Britain at war once again, there was a very real threat of an American invasion of Canada. So the war had a temporary unifying effect on the Canadians, both English and French-speaking alike, because they relied on the protection of Great Britain. 
Once the war was over, the English-speaking economic elites began to advocate for the unification of all British colonies in Canada so as to act as a counterbalance to American military and economic power. In response to this, French speakers in the Canadian party began to take on a nationalist identity, afraid that they would be further overlooked in a unified Canadian colony. And that brings us to 1815, when Jean-Louis Papineau was elected Speaker for the Canadian Party in the House of Assembly, and his anti-unification ideals quickly put him at odds with Governor Dalhousie, who favored it. Dalhousie and Papineau were at odds for over a decade, until 1827, when the governor decided he had finally had enough, and he forced the House of Assembly to dissolve and then be re-elected, in order to remove Papineau as Speaker. Un unfortunately for him, Papineau was simply re-elected. Dalhousie then suspended the assembly and did not call for another round of re-elections, effectively crippling it where it stood, and the people of Lower Canada petitioned the king to have Dalhousie removed from office, which was actually granted since the petition had nearly 90,000 signatures. With Dalhousie removed from office and the House of Assembly working at full function once again, Things sort of simmered down for a couple of years until 1832, when Patriot, uh, Patriots, by the way, are the nickname for members of the Canadian Party. Anyway, in 1832, Patriot newspapers published pages that spoke very ill of the Legislative Council, so the heads of the papers were arrested. These arrests came at a very bad time for civil stability in Lower Canada. May of that year, there was an election, and during said election, fighting broke out in the Lower Canadian capital of Montreal. Royal troops were called in to maintain the peace, but they ended up firing on the crowd, killing three French Canadians in the process. This massacre, combined with the previous arrests, caused tensions to spike between the French Canadians and the British government. During the height of these tensions, Papineau submitted 92 resolutions to the House of Assembly, which outlined the people's issues with the Legislative Council. They were not demanding independence, in fact, they reiterated over and over again that they were loyal to the Crown and just wanted reform, like maybe an elected Legislative Council. The 92 resolutions ended up passing with incredible popular support among both French and even English-speaking Canadians. When London received the 92 resolutions, they mandated that Gosford, the new governor of Lower Canada, do something to fix the situation without giving away any of the Crown's power. Gosford outwardly tried to dissuade allegiance to the Canadian party, but he was quietly forming a militia to oppose them should the need arise. In 1837, Papineau got his long-awaited response to his 92 resolutions. The Crown responded by saying that not a single one of them would be passed, and that the Legislative Council would remain a royally appointed body. This complete disregard for their concerns was obviously deeply offensive to the Canadian party, so they responded by boycotting British trade and instead smuggling goods from across the United States border. 
That summer, Patriot supporters started to form public demonstrations, which were attended by thousands of people, including Papineau, who wanted to ensure that resistance remained civil. Governor Gosford tried to ban the demonstrations, but at this point, very few people were actually listening to him anymore. In fact, even members of his own legislative council quit in support of the Patriot movement. He would try to replace some of these men with French Canadians in order to gain their trust, but of course this was very see-through and it didn't work. By autumn, radicals had taken control of many of the Patriot gatherings and turned them into riots outside of government officials' homes, which was a pretty clear intimidation tactic. On October 24th, there was a massive Patriot convention at which the Society of the Sons of Liberty was formed. This would act as the armed wing of the Canadian Party, and it was formed even with the approval of Papineau himself. Granted, Papineau did say that he thought the time to fight had not yet come, and that there were still peaceful moves to make, but another patriot, Wolfred Nelson, immediately followed Papineau's speech with one of his own, in which he outwardly disagreed and called for armed revolution. This caused a rift in the patriot movement between Papineau's moderates and Nelson's radicals. The Society of the Sons of Liberty saw their first violence on November 6, 1837, when they were holding a meeting in Montreal and were attacked by members of the Doric Club, which was basically a loyalist version of the Society of the Sons of Liberty. Low-level violence quickly spread throughout the city, and arrest warrants were issued for the members of the Sons of Liberty, who were blamed for the fighting. Eventually, armed fighting broke out between law enforcement and some of those convicted, who were promptly arrested. Then, on November 16th, just 10 days later, as 16 law enforcement members were escorting three detained patriots, they were stopped by 150 armed patriots. Needless to say, the patriots won this fight, and this was a huge boost to their morale and support for the cause, but this meant that the army's entry into the conflict was now guaranteed. Six days later, Wolfred Nelson, the man who had outwardly called for armed revolution, was tipped off that the British regulars were headed for Saint-Denis, one of the two strongholds of the rebellion. Nelson thus blocked roads and destroyed bridges going in and out of the city, ensuring that the regulars had very few routes of entry. Along these entry routes, he placed 800 men in two concentrated areas. About 200 were in a local coach house, and some more were in a distillery nearby. He also put people loosely in the woods around the city to act as guerrilla fighters. Although it's worth noting that only about half of these patriots actually had guns. At 10 p.m. that night, 300 British troops departed the nearby town of Sorel and headed for Saint-Denis, despite the cold and the rain. And I'm sure their morale was very high. After all, all they had to do was march 20 miles on a dirt road in the rain at night in Canada in late November with full military gear on. It's practically a walk in the park. Just after midnight on November 23, 1837, 
The regulars were spotted and fired upon by Nelson's guerrillas, who then retreated back into town. General Gore, the leader of the regulars, responded by firing his only cannon at the coach house, which housed 200 of Nelson's men. But the cannon did no damage, as the coach house's walls were made of stone four feet thick for some reason. I'm not really sure why a building that was meant to house stagecoaches needed stone walls that were four feet thick, but it was a good thing that they were, or some of Nelson's men would have been sort of a fine red mist. Seeing that the cannon wasn't doing much from their current position, Gore sent it to a nearby barn so it could keep firing on the coach house and also be under some cover. It managed to kill three Patriots when the first shot went through a window, but from there every other shot bounced off the walls, and the entire time the Patriots in the coach house were firing back at the cannon's position, forcing them eventually to retreat. Gore thus ordered 200 of his 300 men to capture the coach house by storm, and by 1 p.m., that's like 13 hours of fighting later, they had secured the building across the street, but this put them in range of both the coach house and the distillery that I mentioned earlier, so they were in crossfire and forced to retreat within an hour. Gore ordered them to try again, this time taking a different route, but here they encountered makeshift earthen ramparts filled with 500 militiamen. And just at that moment, a hundred Patriot reinforcements arrived and charged the British flank. The 500 earthwork militiamen and the 200 men in the coach house joined the charge, which forced the British to retreat yet again. The Patriots were now on the offensive, and Gore ordered a full retreat by four o'clock. During this retreat, Gore's only cannon got stuck in the mud, so he sabotaged it and left it there. While this was a huge military victory for the Patriots, there was a bit of an ideological loss, as they discovered that Papineau had fled the area pretty much as soon as the fighting started, which prompted some concern about his faith in the cause. A mere two days after the Patriot victory at Saint-Denis, 400 British regulars under General Wetherall attacked the Patriot town of St. Charles, which housed 250 or so rebels under the command of Thomas Storrow Brown. This fight did not go nearly as well for the Patriots. Brown's horse was shot out from under him in the Brits' opening attack, prompting him to flee for St. Denis, where he was relieved of command by Nelson. Within 15 minutes of the opening volley, the regulars had already secured the high ground. One Patriot group attacked the British flank, shooting Wetherall's horse out from under him, but after an hour or so of stationary fighting, the British bayonet charged the rebel camp and broke through. In the melee, 56 of the Patriots died, and only three British regulars. This was a crippling defeat prompting Nelson and Papineau to flee for the United States. By mid-December, one of the last Patriot strongholds was St. Eustache, guarded by 200 militiamen. The Patriots were holed up in the church at the center of town. 
The British surrounded the town and slowly moved in, closing the circle and burning buildings as they went. Eventually, they reached the church and set it ablaze, prompting the Patriots to jump out the windows and off of the balcony, at which point they were shot. Seventy Patriots died, including their commander Jean Chenier, and once again, only three British died. Following this defeat and the defeat at St. Charles about a month earlier, the Republican movement in Lower Canada was effectively dead. But it was still very much alive in Vermont, of all places. It was in Middlebury, Vermont, on January 2nd, 1838, that the remaining rebels in exile convened and made a plan to invade Canada and establish an independent republic. Papineau opposed this plan once again, deeming it doomed to fail, but on February 22, 1838, they declared their independence anyway, as the Republic of Lower Canada. Robert Nelson, the brother of Wolfred, was elected president and thereby general of the army. Six days after their declaration of independence, the rebels launched a raid into Lower Canada, but they had very little success since there were now 5,000 British regulars stationed there. This attack prompted a light response from the United States, who were upset that this was launched from their territory. Nelson and his men were thus arrested and quickly released, just as a show of U.S. neutrality. This taught them the importance of secrecy and guerrilla warfare. After just a few months of being embarrassed, and then a few more months of fighting amongst themselves, the date for the insurrection was set for November 3rd, 1838. The plan was for the Patriots to take a couple of small border towns and grow their numbers along the way as the people joined them, but this ended up failing as law enforcement were able to arrest local Patriots before the insurrection could reach them. Six days later, Nelson made his last stand at Town, where he was outnumbered two to one by British regulars and therefore very easily defeated. This killed the rebellion and therefore the death date of the Republic of Lower Canada is November 9th, 1838. The Republic of Lower Canada therefore existed for a grand total of 260 days, all of which were actually not in Canada. They were in exile for the entirety of their official, unofficial existence. And I think that has a pretty large role to play in why the Republic of Lower Canada was forgotten. Typically, establishing a new country from exile after you've already lost the war is not a good sign for your country's longevity. Additionally, there is the fact that this took place in Canada. I know at least here in the United States, and I would assume in other foreign countries that are not Canada, we don't really learn a lot about Canadian history. And as a result, pretty much any historical figure, let alone historical event or rebellion, would go over the heads of most Americans, and again, I'm assuming most other foreigners. Of course, the ideology behind the Republic of Lower Canada did not die when the Republic died. Quebec still advocates for independence from Canada to this day, 
In fact, there was an independence referendum in 1995, which is 20 years ago now, but still pretty recent, in which the vote in favor of independence received 49.42% of the vote. When Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom died in September of 2022, there were even more outcries for Quebec independence from Canada. In fact, I would put Quebec on my short list for most likely to become a new country within my lifetime. But that is not up for me to decide, that's up for the Canadians to decide. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and you want to hear more of my lovely voice, I have a whole second series running on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash historyofforgottenlands. On that page, I talk about how every country that we know of today came to be. Currently, I will be releasing episodes on Argentina and Armenia. And if not, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again next week.